Hey friends, welcome back to Murder on the Map. I'm your host Taylor and I'm really glad that you're here. I am back this week with part two of The Watcher. I never do two-part episodes, but this story is A, pretty long, and B, absolutely insane, so I think it was worth the cliffhanger. I, You might notice this episode is out on a Thursday. Today is actually the day that the Netflix show launches. I said it last episode, but the Ryan Murphy um, show on Netflix is premiering today. It's going to be really insane. It has a great cast. And as soon as I post this episode, I'm actually going to go start watching. If you have not listened to The Watcher Part 1, stop this episode, go back and listen, because otherwise you will be real fucking lost. Thank you so much for listening to the show. I see you guys tagging me on Instagram and sharing it with friends. I appreciate all of you. Uh, Again, please rate and review the podcast. And let's get into the story right after the break. Watcher was a real-life mystery to solve. A commenter on NJ.com suggested ground-penetrating radar to find whatever the Watcher claimed was in the walls. A home inspector had already looked and told Derek that the only issue was the aging home's lack of insulation. A group of Redditors obsessed over Google Maps Street View, which showed a car parked in front of 657 Boulevard that one user thought had a man holding a camera in the driver's seat. Others just saw a pixelated glare. The range of proposed suspects included a jilted mistress, a spurned realtor, a local high schooler's creative writing project, and guerrilla marketing for a horror movie. Also, one Redditor insisted on multiple posts that I saw that it was, quote, mall goths having fun. Some people just thought the Broadduses were wimps for not moving in. One Redditor was quoted saying, I would never let this sicko stop me from moving into a house. Never back down from a terrorist. In Westfield, people were on edge. Laurie Clancy, who teaches piano lessons in her house behind 657 Boulevard, told reporters that one of her students came for a lesson shortly after the news of the watcher broke and started bawling. She was terrified to walk down the boulevard, Laurie said. At the first Westfield Town Council meeting after the letters became public, Mayor Andy Skibitsky assured the public that the watcher hadn't been heard from in over a year and that even though the police had not solved the case, their investigation had been, quote, exhaustive. This was news to all of 657's neighbors, most of whom had never even heard from the cops. They gave a combined statement in the newspaper saying, we are confused as to how a thorough investigation can be conducted without talking to all the neighbors in proximity to the home. Under the glare of national attention, Baron Chambliss, a veteran detective in the Westfield Police Department, was asked to look at the case. Shambliss knew his colleagues had looked closely at Michael Langford. According to his brother, Sandy Langford, Michael had been diagnosed with schizophrenia as a young man. 
He sometimes spooked newcomers to the neighborhood when he did strange things like walk through their backyard or peek into the windows of homes that were being renovated. But those who knew him told reporters that the odd things he did were mostly just unusual neighborly kindnesses. John Schmidt, a neighbor who lives next door, said he goes out and gets the newspapers for me every morning. People who had known Michael for decades didn't think he was capable of writing the letters. As Shambliss looked into the case, he discovered something surprising. Investigators had eventually conducted a DNA analysis on one of the envelopes and determined that the DNA belonged to a woman. Shambliss decided to look more closely at Abby Langford, Michael's sister, who worked as a real estate agent. Was she upset about missing out on a commission right next door? She also worked at the local Lord and & Taylor, and Shambliss coordinated with a security guard there to nab her plastic water bottle during a shift. But Shambliss said the DNA sample was not a match. Not long after, the prosecutor's office gave Derek and Maria some unexpected news. They wouldn't say why or how, but they had officially ruled out all of the Langfords as suspects. The Broadduses were stunned. They had recently told the prosecutors that they planned to file a civil charge against the Langfords and wondered if the prosecutors were lying to prevent the story from blowing up again. Sandy Langford told reporters, quote, My family moved to the boulevard in 1961, and we never caused a problem for anybody. This guy gets all these letters, and all of a sudden people are pointing fingers. Left without a suspect, the Broadduses reopened their personal investigation. They were still coy about sharing too much with their neighbors, who remained in the pool of suspects, but spent an afternoon walking down the block with a picture of the watcher's handwritten envelope. They hoped that someone might recognize the writing from a Christmas card, but the only notable encounter came when an older man who lived behind 657 said his son joked that the watcher sounded a little bit like him. A neighbor across the street who was the CEO of Crawl, the security firm, and the Broadduses hired the company to look for handwriting matches, but found nothing. They also hired Robert Leonard, a renowned forensic linguist, who didn't find any noteworthy overlap when he scoured local online forums for similarities to the Watcher's writing. Although he did think that the author of the letters might watch Game of Thrones, because Jon Snow is known as one of the Watchers on the wall. At one point, Derek persuaded a friend in tech to connect him to a hacker willing to break into the Wi-Fi networks in the neighborhood to look for incriminating documents. Doing so turned out to be both illegal and more difficult than the movies made it seem, so they didn't go through with it. Shambliss and the Westfield police were back at square one. The cops asked Andrea Woods for a DNA sample and interviewed her 21-year-old son, who was surprised to find out that he suddenly seemed to be a suspect. A year after the fact, it was hard to find fresh leads, and the initial police canvas had been so porous that it missed a significant clue. Around the same time that the Broadduses had received their first letter, another family on the boulevard got a similar note from the watcher. The parents of that family had lived in their house for years, and their kids were grown, so they threw away the letter without thinking about it. But after the news broke, one of their children posted about it on Facebook and then deleted the post. When the investigators spoke to the family, they confirmed that the letter had been similar to the Broadduses, but its existence only made the case more confusing. One night, Shambliss and a partner were sitting in the back of a van parked on Boulevard, watching the house through a pair of binoculars. Around 11 p.m., a car stopped in front of the house long enough for Shambliss to grow suspicious. He said he traced the car back to a young woman in a nearby town whose boyfriend lived on the same block as 657. The woman told Shambliss that her boyfriend was into, quote, some dark video games, 
including in Shambliss's memory, one of which was playing as a specific character, the Watcher. As for the female DNA, Shambliss figured the girlfriend or someone else could have helped. The boyfriend was living elsewhere at the time, but Shambliss says he agreed to come in for an interview on two separate occasions. He didn't show up either time. Shambliss didn't have enough evidence to compel him to appear, and with the media attention dying down, he dropped the case and moved on. While the Broadduses continued to be consumed by stress and fear, for the rest of Westfield, the story became little more than a creepy urban legend, a house to walk by on Halloween if you were brave enough. No one who had lived in the house before the Woodses could recall anything unusual, and it was hard to get people to imagine that their idyllic neighborhood could be host to something so sinister. A woman who lives nearby told reporters that after the news broke, she and 10 or so of her neighbors had gathered in the street to puzzle out who might have sent the letters. Eventually, they all came to the same consensus. Maybe the Broadduses had sent the letters to themselves. The theory, as far as it went, was that the Broadduses had suffered buyer's remorse or realized they couldn't afford the home and concocted an elaborate scheme to get out of the sale. Or they thought maybe Derek was cooking up some kind of insurance fraud or they were angling for a movie deal. The Broadduses had actually received several offers of movie deals, but turned them down. Lifetime eventually released a movie called The Watcher, despite a cease and desist letter from the Broadduses, arguing that the couple in the movie was biracial and the letters were signed The Raven. Some locals found it noteworthy that over the course of a decade, the Broadduses had upgraded from a $315,000 house to a $770,000 house to a $1.3 million house and refinanced all of the mortgages. A few weeks after the letters becoming public, the Westfield Leader published an article in which anonymous neighbors were quoted asking why the Broadduses kept renovating a home they weren't moving into, or questioning had they really done that much renovating at all. The letter even cast doubt on Maria's commitment to her public safety, citing the fact that she had a public Facebook page with photos of her kids. The paper did note that the police had tested Maria's DNA and it did not match. When looked at closely though, none of the theories made much logical sense. The Broadduses had answers to every question, but they weren't speaking publicly and so the rumors persisted. One Boulevard resident wrote a letter to the editor claiming that an elaborate scheme was underway to defraud the Woods family for millions of dollars. Shambliss said that even some Westfield cops bought into the theory. There were even more skeptics online. Lord Fluffernutter on Reddit said, I live in a neighboring town. If these letters had been happening for a while, there is no doubt in my mind that it would have been made public way before this. This screams scam. The Broadduses hadn't known how their neighbors would react to the news about the Watcher, but had lived in the area for a decade, and Maria's family had been part of the community for much longer, so it was shocking to find themselves accused of being con artists. To Derek, it seemed that some in Westfield preferred the conspiracy theory to considering whether their town might be home to a menace. He said, there's a natural tendency to say, I've lived here for 35 years and nothing's happened to me. What happened to my family is a front to their contention that they're safe and that there's no such thing as mental illness in their community. People don't want to believe that this could happen in Westfield. While Maria looks back fondly on her childhood, she was born a few years after Westfield resident John List infamously murdered his wife, mother, and three children in their home. She remembers a period where she and other kids were warned to look out for a strange van driving around town. Many locals that reporters spoke to did seem more concerned that the national press might ruin Westfield's good reputation. 
Some were primarily worried about arson or vandalism or whether the Broadduses would maintain the lawn. And in case you're wondering, they did. Mark Legrippio, the neighborhood's representative on the Westfield Town Council, told reporters that the primary concern he had from residents were that they were worried about their own property values and stigma of the neighborhood. The Broadduses were suddenly outcast not only from their home, but also from their town. Derek wanted to leave Westfield, but Maria insisted on not uprooting the kids. Two years after the Watchers' letters arrived, the Broadduses borrowed money from family members to buy a second home in Westfield, using an LLC to keep the location private. But staying in town was stressful. The first time Maria let her daughter go to the pool with friends, she stared at the tracker on her daughter's iPhone the whole time. One of their kids was in language arts class when a teacher led a debate about whether the family in the book they were reading should move to Westfield. The class thought they should, in part because of how safe it was. Afterwards, one of the kids told the Broadus' child, My parents told me that no matter what your family says, Westfield is safe. Meanwhile, the Broadduses still had to figure out what to do with 657 Boulevard. Their lawsuit was pending but seemed unlikely to succeed. Some states require sellers to disclose transient social conditions, like murders or possible haunting. In a 1991 case involving an allegedly ghost-filled house, a New York court ruled that, as a matter of law, the house is haunted. But New Jersey had no such regulation. Derek looked into renting the house to a Department of Veteran Affairs and a company that runs halfway homes. In the spring of 2016, they put 657 back on the market, hoping that it might garner more interest given how many people have said that they would ignore the letters and just move in. The Broadduses held a well-attended open house, after which Derek and Maria spent hours researching every person who signed in and comparing their handwriting to the watchers. But each time a potential buyer expressed interest and met with the Broadduses' lawyer to read the letters, they backed out. Feeling as though they were out of options, the Broadduses' real estate lawyers proposed an idea. Sell the house to a developer who could tear it down and split the property into two sellable homes. They thought they could get $1 million for the lot, at least. Subdivisions like this had become common in Westfield, much to the chagrin of many locals, and 657 was one of the neighborhood's largest lots. Even so, it would, dividing it would require the Westfield Planning Board to grant an exception. The two smaller lots would be 67.4 and 67.6 feet wide, just shy of the mandated 70 feet. When the proposal was publicly announced, Westfield's Facebook groups lit up. Some expressed sympathy for the Broadduses, while others pointed out that real estate is always a gamble. Another faction was convinced that this was the culmination of a long con. One user was quoted saying, Out of this whole scam artist story, there ends up being nothing more disturbing than this move. Another guy, who actually coached the Broadduses' son in football, said they were over their head from day one. The application was jarring for neighbors who had learned about the watcher from a lawsuit, and they had always found it strange that the Broadduses didn't share more information, not seeming to understand that they were following orders from the police and trying to protect their kids. A typical Facebook conversation went something like this one. User 1. Sounds like the whole watcher thing was a ploy. User 2. The owners are good people. It's not a ploy. User 1. Okay, I know nothing about them. When the planning board met to decide the application in January 2017, it had already devoted a three-hour block to hearing the issue. More than 100 residents showed up. 
One of them who lived across the street and had a daughter in the same grade as one of the broadest kids had actually retained a lawyer to fight the proposal. Here was a new suspect. Who but the watcher would go so far to hire as an attorney to preserve the house? After a quick discussion about a Wells Fargo branch that wanted to use brighter light bulbs than the town allowed, the room grew as tense as a suburban planning board meeting gets. James Forrest, the Broadus's attorney, explained that the three-foot exemption was as narrow as the easel he was using to display a map of the neighborhood. A map showed several lots on the block that were also too small. The neighbors expressed concern that the plan might require knocking down trees and that new homes would have aesthetically unpleasing front-facing garages. Forrest reportedly threatened the halfway house as a possible alternative. After the lawyers, a parade of neighbors stood up to speak. Glenn Dumont from across the street said the proposal would spell the end of the 600 block of Boulevard as we know it. A woman whose kids had been to the Broaddus' old home for birthday parties spoke out on behalf of nine neighbors and presented 657 Boulevard as Westfield's Alamo. She said, quote, our neighborhoods are constantly under attack from turf, lights, parking decks, you name it. If we can't make a stand on Boulevard, where can we? At one point, Abby Langford stood up to say that she had spent almost 60 years looking at a magnificent, beautiful house and didn't want to be looking out at a driveway. The hearing lasted for four hours, during which there was little discussion of the reason the Broadduses had been driven to tear down their dream home in the first place. Tom Higgins, who lived across the street, said, Had anyone thought about whether or not this lunatic who did this has been apprehended? Even so, Higgins pointed out that there was no guarantee the watcher wouldn't send letters to the two new houses and argued that the aesthetic should rule the day. While some neighbors expressed compassion to the Broadduses, their focus remained on what they stood to gain financially and what themselves might lose. At 11.30 p.m., the board unanimously rejected the proposal. A New Jersey judge later denied the Broadduses' appeal of the decision. Derek and Maria were distraught. Even if the plan had gone through, it only would have to put a band-aid on their financial bleeding. On top of the mortgage and the renovations, they had paid around $100,000 in Westfield property taxes. The town denied their request for relief and spent at least that amount investigating the watcher and exploring other ways to deal with the home, not to mention cleaning the gutters. The Broadduses recognized that 657 Boulevard was a beautiful house on a beautiful street that was worth maintaining and were surprised their neighbors didn't see the uniqueness of the situation. Maria told reporters, this is my town. I grew up here, I came back, and I chose to raise my kids here. You know what we've been through. You have the ability, after two and a half years into a nightmare, to make it a little better, and you have decided that this house is more important than we are. That's really how it feels. On top of everything that they were dealing with, Maria's dad had also recently died unexpectedly. Father Michael Supporto, the priest who had blessed the house, went into one of the planning board meetings and told reporters that he was taken aback by how many people had come up to him and said they thought the whole thing was a hoax. He told reporters that the human element of the story was kind of lost on the neighbors. The watcher had expressed a desire to protect the boulevard from change, but instead the watcher had torn it apart. Not long after the board's planning decision, the Broadduses got some good news. A family with grown children and two big dogs had agreed to rent 657 Boulevard. The renter told the Star-Ledger he wasn't worried about the watcher, though he had a clause in the lease that let him out in case of another letter. 
Two weeks later, Derek went to 657 to deal with squirrels that had taken up residence in the roof. The renter handed him an envelope that had just arrived. The letter said, Violent winds and bitter cold. To the vile and spiteful Derek and his wench of a wife, Maria. This letter, two and a half years after the watcher appeared, came out of nowhere. It was dated February 13th, the day the Broadduses gave depositions in their lawsuit against the Woodses. The letter went on to say, You wonder who the watcher is? Turn around, idiots. Maybe if you spoke to me, one of the so-called neighbors, who has no idea who the watcher could be. Or maybe you do know and you're too scared to tell anyone. Good move. The letter was less stylish and more wrathful than the others, and it seemed that this writer had been cl closely following the story in the press. They had obviously seen all of the media coverage because of things that tie from the media coverage to the letter. In the letter it says, I walked by the news trucks when they took over my neighborhood and mocked me. They talk about Derek's investigative efforts as, I watched you as you watched from the dark house in an attempt to find me. Telescopes and binoculars are wonderful inventions. And then finally, the attempt to tear down the house. 657 Boulevard survived your attempted assault and stood strong with its army of supporters barricading its gates. My soldiers of the Boulevard followed my orders to a T. They carried out their mission and saved the soul of 657 Boulevard with my orders. All hail the Watcher. The renter was mentioned and he was spooked but agreed to stay if the Broadduses installed cameras around the house. And the letter indicated revenge could come in many forms. Maybe it will be a car accident, maybe a fire, maybe something as simple as a mild illness that never seems to go away, but makes you feel sick day after day after day after day. Maybe the mysterious death of a pet, loved ones suddenly die, planes and cars and bicycles crash, bones break. Maria told reporters that it was like they were back at the beginning, but it also meant fresh evidence that might help invigorate the investigation. Derek took the letter to police headquarters where a detective looked at the neighborhood map and traced a circle around the house 300 yards in diameter, suggesting the watcher might be somewhere in there. Derek drew one much closer. The Broadduses continued to press the case, but there still wasn't much for law enforcement to go on, and it was possible to look up and down the street and see the watcher in practically anyone. Residents mentioned to reporters that there was a teenager whose father had grown up around the corner and a man who sometimes walked around the neighborhood playing a flute. There was an elderly couple behind the house who had been there for 47 years. In episode one, I told you that Bill Woodward, the painter um, that the Broadduses had hired, had seen the husband of that couple sitting on a lawn chair looking at the Broadduses' house. One of their kids had married a man who grew up in, of all places, 657 Boulevard. But these were bits of information that could mean everything or nothing, depending on how hard you looked at them. The Broadduses sent new names of, to the investigators whenever they found something odd, but their greatest fear was that the Watcher could be someone that they never suspect. The Broadduses no longer live in ever-present fear that the Watcher might strike at any moment, but they continue to deal with lingering effects from the letters. They have a new tenant at 657, but the rent doesn't cover the mortgage. The kids are occasionally teased at school, and all of the rumors persist. They try to avoid the people who spoke out against the planning board application or accuse them of being con artists, but suburban life makes that impossible. Derek said that he sees people on the soccer field or at the train station, and his heart starts going like it did back when everything was going on. He feels like he's always about to get into a fight.
When Maria found herself in a spin class at the YMCA with the head of the planning board, she went up afterward and told him, quote, you continue to hurt my family every day. Earlier this year, the planning board approved splitting a lot around the corner that required even a larger exception than the Broadduses. Most people in Westfield say that they rarely even think about the watcher anymore. The real estate market is doing fine for one, and many were surprised to find out the Broadduses are still dealing with the problem. Hindsight made Der- Derek and Maria wonder if they should have sold the house at a loss early on, and 657 Boulevard conjured too much emotional pain for them to ever consider moving in. They hope that a few years of renting the place without incident will help them sell it. The prosecutor's office was continuing its investigation, but the Broadduses know that it is likely that the Watcher would never be caught and the legal punishment would likely be minimal. The Watcher was also no longer the only person sending anonymous letters in Westfield. Last Christmas Eve, several families received an envelope in their mailboxes. They'd been delivered by hand to the homes of people who had been most vocal in criticizing the Broadduses online. One of them, who lived a few blocks down on the boulevard, had written on Facebook, quote, I wish we could go back to the day of tars and feathers. I have just the couple in mind. Another family who got the letter told reporters that it was weirdly poetic as the watchers have been, and that it accused the families of speculating inaccurately about the Broadduses. It included several stories about recent acts of domestic terrorism in which signs of brewing mental illness had gone unnoticed. The typed letters were signed Friends of the Broadus Family. The letter writer had clearly been infected not only with the watcher's penchant for anonymous notes, but also a simmering resentment, one that had snaked its way through Westfield, making enemies of neighbors. Then people who received the letters didn't know who sent them, but the tone had a familiar ring. When a reporter asked Derek Broadus whether he had written them, he paused for a moment and then admitted that he had. He wasn't proud of it and he hadn't even told Maria, but he said they were the only anonymous letters he'd ever written. He had felt driven to his wit's end, fed up with watching silently as people threw accusations at his family based on practically nothing. One of the people who had received the letters told reporters they had never met the Broadduses and had no interest in doing so. The Watcher had been obsessed with 657 Boulevard, and Derek, in turn, had become obsessed with The Watcher and everything the letters had set in motion. He told reporters, it's like cancer. We think about it every day. I read an article from a reporter who said he was sitting at the Westfield train station with Derek, and Derek handed the reporter the phone so he could read the fourth letter. The final letter says, you are despised by the house, and The Watcher won. As of today, October 13th, 2022, the day the Netflix show is premiering, there is absolutely no evidence of anyone who is the watcher and the case remains unsolved. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Murder on the Map. Uh, I hope that you guys will all share your theories with me. You can DM me on Instagram at taylorbtalks or email me at murderonthemap at gmail.com. And then also, let me know what you think about the show. Like I said at the beginning of the episode, I'm about to go watch it literally right after I post this episode. So let me know what you guys think. Let me know if you have any stories or anything you want me to tell. I am going the next few weeks probably going to stick with some haunted stories, some spooky stories, since we are almost at my peak season of Halloween. So yeah, I will talk to you guys soon. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next week with an all-new episode. Stay safe, friends.